As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day. and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I wasn't a prodigy in any way, but I was quite good, you know, as a kid. I kind of felt I don't play basketball and I don't run very well, but I do this pretty well. And as I kept going with it, I kind of thought when I was 14 or 15, I thought I would I would really love to do this for a living. You know, this was this was a fantasy. This became a fantasy. The fantasy was going on stage at, for example, Carnegie Hall. And I was very lucky the fantasy became a reality, but I think it was kind of gradual. There was not one day when I said, this is it. That's Emmanuel Axe. His boyhood dream of one day playing in Carnegie Hall eventually led to his becoming one of the most esteemed pianists in the world of classical music. He's not only played in Carnegie, but in just about every great hall in the world. He's been a good friend for many years, and he made time to be on the show, even though he was right in the middle of a tour of Europe. Manny, this is great. Thank you for making time. Believe it or not, I'm in Switzerland for the evening. <laughs> for the evening. I, it, well, it's a little <laughs> crazy. I I played, uh, I, I had some concerts in Germany, and I played Sunday, and today I had a rehearsal in Munich. Oh. And then I got driven here because I have to do something with Yo-Yo tomorrow. And then I'll go back to Munich and play some more concerts. But anyway. How, how do you keep it all in your head? I don't have to. I just get told what to do and I do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm always interested when I talk to a musician and hear him talking to one of the most respected musicians in the world. I'm always interested in comparing your experience with the experience of an actor. They're two performing arts, and I wonder how they compare to one another. For instance, do you get nervous before you go on? I definitely do get nervous, yeah. Still, uh, pretty much every time I play a concert, even if, even if there are, let's say, in a weekend, three concerts, repeats of one after the other, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'll probably be differently anxious for each one. I'll be nervous for each one. On the stage, we worry about a second night letdown, the, the night after opening night, uh, after the first really important public performance. Uh -huh. We try to guard against letting down all our energy and our concentration. Do you, do you, do you yeah. worry about something like that? I, you know, I, I kind of understand that, but what happens with me is that I get so nervous about not being nervous that I'm nervous all over again. <laughs> if you don't get <laughs> you nervous know? enough, you're worried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, 
but then in in a way that's the wrong kind of nerves. The most responsive person to to the positive side of it is is my friend Yo-Yo Ma, because Yo-Yo somehow seems to be able to be very excited, but not nervous to the point of where it affects your performance negatively. So it's kind of he just seems to hit the nail on the head in in that respect. And I try to learn from him. I do my very best. Well, I remember one night at Tanglewood, you you and Yo-Yo were sharing a dressing room, and we came back to visit you right before the concert. And I was nervous about yeah. distracting you both because I, I like to concentrate <laughs> right before I go on. And Yo-Yo was cracking jokes and embracing people I, and having fun. And you were over in the corner yeah. at the piano still practicing <laughs> for the performance. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, 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 keep, I keep playing until the last second. But what, what was interesting to me about, about Yo-Yo and, and the jokes and so forth is I just saw a show about Michael Jordan uh. Uh, called The Last Dance. And one of his teammates, I think, or actually it was, it was Magic Johnson who said about him that he always seemed to be present in the moment that that's his greatest gift. Uh, and I think in a way that's true for Yo-Yo. Yeah. That's what I would love to steal from him. You know, he cracks jokes and so forth. And when he goes on stage, he's absolutely there. Yeah, he's in whatever moment that's, he's in. He's he, fully in it. Exactly. Exactly. That's a fabulous talent to have. That reminds me of spontaneity, what I would call spontaneity in an acting role, where the performance can go somewhere that it didn't go in rehearsal. Do you find that it goes somewhere in the performance that it didn't go in practice? Oh, without question, because of many things. But I think you you react in very small ways to things. You know, you've rehearsed things and you feel a certain way. People are sitting in a certain way. Uh, there's no audience. Uh, then you come out, there's an audience Everybody on stage, every, all my friends in the orchestra and the conductor yeah. are all slightly reacting differently, and therefore I'm reacting differently. I notice different things. I sometimes am in a different mood. You know, mm. you just, uh, you're, you're suddenly, you're thinking about a different way of looking at the music than you were that morning, maybe. You know, where you felt that morning you were very excited by a particular spot in the piece, you may feel that spot is more relaxed in the performance uh, and something else is more, you know, sort of hysterical. <laughs> uh, so I think, but but they're very small changes, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah, you're still playing the notes. Right. But I think when all the little things might add up to a big difference. Right. Do, how how far thing. does it go? Inner voices that you were aware of and practiced are suddenly have a different meaning, a different different uh, presentation. Exactly. That suddenly, you know, your thumb in the left hand has has stuck out more than you <laughs> were planning for it. That's to happen. interesting. But <laughs> well, that does happen. You know, when you're you're trying to control things on the keyboard, and sometimes you know your thumb does the wrong thing, your fourth finger does the wrong thing, which means your brain is doing the wrong thing essentially. Uh, but sometimes that leads to something a little different, and maybe maybe even okay. <laughs> 
How much a role does the audience play? I think a tremendously important role. I, I think, first of all, because I am so aware that they're out there. Mm. I, I just, I, I know that there's an audience there. And I have no idea how, but there's a kind of back and forth that transmits itself. That's so interesting. Tell me more audience. about that. How, how do you sense it? How, can, you, can you pin down how you feel it? I wish I knew. I wonder sometimes whether it's something like hearing a rustling and not really being, being consciously hearing uh. it, but that it's a subconscious effect. Uh, or maybe realizing that there's an incredible stillness. Yes. You know, you're, play, you're playing something and there's a lot of people on the other side of the stage, but it's incredibly quiet. One of the things I, I noticed since we've been wearing masks to concerts mm. and so forth is that people are coughing a lot less. Oh, that's interesting. You know, so it's, you know, for obviously because they're catching less cold. Yeah. But, but also I think it, it kind of inhibits the coughing impulse or something. And you do become aware of that. You know, you become aware of the stillness. And you said something that made, reminded me of the experience of acting on the stage. There are different kinds of silence. There's mm. the quiet in the theater, but they're still breathing. And then yes. at some moments... Yes that very few that I've experienced, it's almost as though they stopped breathing for me. I know what you mean. And there's more intense attention. And, I, you, and you can be aware of that, even though you're carrying on with the stuff that's coming out of you. Yeah, I think for, for someone like me, for a musician, it may be that we feel that we're all realizing the incredible beauty or intensity or intimacy of the music. You know, that we're all getting it at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I, I think a big difference, actually, well, for me, I, I get to sit on the stage and basically either look at the orchestra, my friends in the orchestra, or stare toward the side of the stage. Mm. You probably are aware, you, you're, you're very often face on with people, aren't well, you? Well, and sometimes the actors ask to do a monologue, a soliloquy. Where, you, right. where you're literally talking to the audience, and they're the other right. actor. They're the they're right. the other member of right. the quartet or the trio. Yes, yes. And how that must feel different from. I love that to because the... it's it's relating directly to them. Usually, you relate to them through your connection with the other actor. Do you have that experience? Right. You're telling them a story, right. a musical story, in a way, but it's through your relationship with the other players. Right, but it's very comforting, actually, to play with other people on the stage. Uh, the piano recital, the solo recital, can be very, very lonely. Yeah. Because everything that happens is really up to you. You have to get things right. You have to connect with the audience. Yeah. Uh, you have to not make a fool of yourself. It's all your problem. What, what about, I know you practice, you practice really, really seriously. I, do you, do you, does it ever occur that you forget where you are and you have to improvise Chopin? Carl Reiner had the ability to improvise Shakespeare. I'm happy to say that so far I haven't had a major memory slip, you know, where I kind of get lost where I am. I think at this point now now that I'm now that I'm about to be 73 years old still a kid I think 
I wouldn't worry so much. I would just stop and say, excuse me, I'm going to start over. <laughs> That's good. That's the best way. The audience would love it. There was, there was a wonderful pianist from the last century, uh, from the 19th century, named Vladimir de Pachman. That yeah. was his name. Yes. And he used to do a lot of things. He would sort of fudge stuff because he didn't practice much, but he loved talking to the audience. And very often... If he would mess something up, he would immediately stop and he'd say, now, that's how my good friend Joseph Hoffman plays it. Now I'll show you how I play it. (laughs) 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 Not only an excuse, but slander. (laughs) It's such a wonderful, you know, relaxed way of being on stage, I guess. (laughs) I mean, obviously everyone knew he was joking. It's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful attitude. That's great. You played together with Yo-Yo for so many years. How many years have you played with? Forty-nine years. Forty-nine years. Have you developed a shorthand in that time? Oh yeah, we don't actually. When when we get together to to so-called rehearse, yeah. we don't talk at all. We just play through stuff over and over. <laughs> As you go through the years and you play the same piece many times, does. Does it change the way you play it together? I think in some ways, you know, again, it's probably small adjustments that add up to something big. We just did something that that we hadn't thought we would ever do. And that's our first recording was the Beethoven cello piano sonatas. Mm -hmm. That was 40 years ago. And last year we re-recorded the Beethoven piano and cello sonatas. (laughs) So when you compare them, what... Well... To be perfectly honest, we were afraid to listen to the early set because we thought, well, if it's really good, then we feel, well, we probably shouldn't have made this other one. And if it's really and if it's really bad, we'll just be ashamed of it. So we just we just didn't listen. You really didn't listen? We we just did it again. And that's the end of it. Do you tend though to listen to your recording? Some some actors won't look at their movies. Peter Lorre once said, I get paid to make them. I don't get paid to look at them. <laughs> I, listen, I listen to concerts of mine that I tape for, for, my, for my education. Like, like, you, a, know, a, a, like a, you tape a concert on your own. Exactly. Or, or, yeah. there'll, be, or there'll be a mic, you know, and I'll ask for a copy of, of, the, of the tape, you know, and, yeah. and say, because that really educates me a lot. Hmm. That's a, that's a very a very wonderful way to learn. It's probably I think the best way to learn. On the subject of recording, how do you factor in the audience when there's no audience there while you're recording? Is it a vastly different experience for you without the audience? Well, the the two differences are first of all the microphone which is close to you. So I think it might be I, I'm just guessing, but it might be like doing stuff in live theater on the stage hmm. and doing it in a, in a movie. Uh, in oh, the, that's so interesting because in ev- obviously yeah. you don't project when you're in a movie. Right. And I think you project very differently when you're in a recording studio. Wow. You, know, you, you really do have to listen back to what you're getting yeah. and tailor that to what the microphone's picking up. So in a way it's a different, you know, you, you'll do a, a so-called a take, a performance of what you're recording. And then you go into the studio and you listen back and you say, aha, 
I have to change this, 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 and this, partly because of my playing generally, but partly because of the microphone. So that does change. I do, however, feel that there is a producer in the studio, so I feel like that's my audience. Ah, I see. I'm, yeah, I'm playing yeah. for him. Yeah, you know? we, 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 I think, often use the director right. for that purpose. I understand. I understand. But I do think that adjustment might be analogous to kind of, you know, the, the theater versus, versus the microphone or the, or the up-close video camera. I hear that very often in a recording, a section will be played over, re-recorded, just a small oh. section and inserted into the recording. So, Oh, sure, sure. So that imperfections of any kind are substituted. Is that, you, is that, is that the common rule? <laughs> I think that is now the common rule because you can do so much with editing. It, yeah. it used to be when I started recording, you, you had to literally cut the tape with a razor blade. Right, right. You, know, you cut the tape and inserted stuff. So everything had to be, you could only cut it at a loud point, you know, right. a big crash of some sort. Now they can insert pretty much anything anywhere. So that helps us a lot. You know, if we, as, as I want to do, I, I mess things up very often. And sometimes I mess them up over and over and over. So I only have to get it right once. <laughs> They'll fix it. <laughs> you know, when they talk about you on the internet, they always talk about how modest you are. And there was an example of it. You, you're very generous with your self-appraisal. I, I keep thinking of Winston Churchill, who said about Lord so-and-so, a modest man with a great deal to be modest about. <laughs> <laughs> that applies to all of us. <laughs> Tell me about competitions. What what does a musician get out of winning a competition, a huge worldwide competition? Well, you know, it's hard to say because uh, in my time, when when competitions were much fewer, uh, probably in the '60s and the '70s or early '70s, uh, and certainly in the '50s and '60s, uh, a major competition got you. A real chance to perform. You know, you'd get to play with some very big orchestras. You'd probably get management. You'd probably get a recording mm. contract. Now, this is if you won the competition? This is if you won the competition. But even if you got one of the prizes, you know, let's say second or third prize or something, people would hear you and notice you. And with any luck, those things would happen. Uh, I think one of the problems today is that there is such a proliferation of competitions that even the very big ones don't don't seem to have the same impact you know as as they used to and the the amount of talent these days is so overwhelming it's just it's very difficult i've i've only been a judge in a competition once in my life that was back in 1975 and i was a hopeless well I, I wound up liking just about everybody. <laughs> that would and be so, my problem. I don't know how to, how, how do you separate well, uh, them out? If, how do you remember who if, played what? I, 
Well, I remember very well, but but the trouble is, I I liked them all, and and the rest of the jury was very angry really? with me because they well they kept saying you're not doing us any good, you know, you're just giving everybody top marks. So what are we supposed to get from that? So I haven't been a judge since, <laughs> and it's better that way. It's better to be judged than to judge, in my opinion. <laughs> I heard you say once that being part of a competition is like. A lottery. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Is that because everybody is so good? You're, you're, you're competing against such good people? First of all, because everybody's so gifted. Uh, number two, you have to hope that the day you play, you have a really good day. Number, uh. three, number three, you have to hope that the people who are on the panel judging you like the way you play, because, of course, there are many ways to do things. And you may you may find a group of jurors who perfectly reasonably feel well he's very gifted but he's not to my taste you know he mm. or she are, are are just not to my taste so any any of that's possible uh yeah uh, luck is luck is a huge part of it huge When we come back from our break, Emmanuel Axe tells me how the pandemic, while it was frustrating and having to cancel concerts, has also been an opportunity. Playing in some unlikely venues, like the back of a flatbed truck. And we talk about his brushing up on Bach, and what was perhaps his proudest achievement, installing a shower head. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. 
This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Emmanuel Axe. I was interested one time you were telling us that although you love your life in music, you have fantasies about doing other things. And the craziest one was the contractor who built your house. T- tell me more about that. I, I can't get over that. Well, we have, you know, we got we got this small house built in in the Berkshires near Tanglewood because yeah. we had I'd been going we had been going there for 20 years with our family for the summer and we thought well maybe it's time to you know decide that we really are going to spend the rest of our summers there uh, and so we got this house built and the contractor has become a very good friend he's a wonderful man uh gentle wonderful all embracing so we love him uh, and he's also very, very persnickety about stuff. Yeah. So when the house was being built, he was so oriented to every detail. You know that some, you have wiring behind the wall, for example, and of course you're going to put drywall over it. But the wiring had to be done absolutely perfectly at right angles with everything. And I was so admiring of that. And when I saw these people who were so skillful and could do all these amazing things, I thought, I want to do this. I I want to make something that stands there. <laughs> and I've I've done one thing. I have I have already done a project. What, what did, did you? I got the impression you apprenticed yourself to this contractor. I, I, no, I'm trying to get him to apprentice me, but so far he won't do it. Too persnickety. <laughs> first of all, and second of all, I think he doesn't want me to cut my hand off just yet. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, what is the project I, you did? What did but, you build? I I built nothing, but. I replaced a shower head in our bathroom. <laughs> I, this, is a, this is a little bit like a finger exercise compared to a symphony. I, I understand, but still, <laughs> I just want you to know I did that. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, early in your childhood, you chose music, and oddly enough, not plumbing. <laughs> no, I probably over there we didn't really have plumbing. I don't, I don't, no, I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> well, what, what, do you remember what drew you to music? Well, I think in those days, at least in Russia and in Poland, I think all the kids did music. Everybody did music. It was uh. just one of those things. You studied the piano or the violin or something, you know, as a kid. And I was one of the ones that just liked it, I guess. So I kept going with it. Yeah. How did you go from that to deciding to really pursue a career in music? Well, I think it was it was kind of gradual, to, to be honest, because I wasn't a prodigy in any way, but I was I was quite good, you know, mm. and uh, as as a kid. So I kind of felt this is something I do well. You know, I don't I don't play basketball. And I don't run very well, but I do this pretty well. And as I kept going with it, I kind of thought, well, when I was 14 or 15, I thought I would, I would really love to do this for a living. You know, this was, this was a fantasy. This became a fantasy. The fantasy was going on stage at, for example, Carnegie Hall, 
And I was very lucky the fantasy became a reality, but I think it was kind of gradual. I, I don't think I don't think it was anything. There was not one day when I said, this is it. I think it's as simple as that. What about your early years? You and your parents were had an interesting place of birth. Yeah, we come from a city which is very much in the news now, Lviv. Uh-huh. And my mother was born, my father was born there, my mother was born there, and I was born there. My father was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, my mother was born in Poland, and I was born in the Soviet Union. And now it's the Ukraine. We're experiencing the terrible pain it's, of these people with this new conflict. But were there conflicts that accounted for your, the birth of your parents either in Poland or the Austro-Hungarian well, Empire? Well, sure. These were, these were all takeovers by other, by other countries. You know? yeah. so, so in a way, what's going on in the Ukraine now is not really new. Mm. It's, it's horrible, but not new. It's, it's happened before many times. I know this is personal to you because I've it's, seen some of the songs of comfort that you and Yo-Yo did. You're obviously moved by the plight of your audience very often. I, I remember a story you told us at dinner one night about a concert you gave in Berlin for refugees. Where were they from? Well, they were coming from all over the, the, the Middle East. And one of the Berlin orchestras that I was playing with, they were they were so supportive of these people who were housed in an in an airport hangar, you know, and we went there and just played music for them and it was it was in the incredible. Hangar. In the hangar. Yeah, yeah. They brought in a piano and, and a couple of friends from the orchestra came with me and we played for them and it was I just did it once or twice there when I was there. But there were people from the orchestra that did it over and over and over, you know, as a regular thing, An incredible dedication and, and warmth. And they were wonderful. But you, you seem to gravitate to that. You and Yo-Yo went around on the back of a truck delivering <laughs> concerts in parking lots, right? Tell me about yes. that. I don't know the whole story. <laughs> well, that was just, you know, when the pandemic started, we were, we were just, uh, sitting around basically in in the Berkshires where where we both work every summer yeah so there was the piano mover a wonderful guy named Stefan he decided you know we, we asked him about it because Yo-Yo thought we should try and, and and do something I said yeah great I'll call Stefan and Stefan says I have just the thing I have a huge flatbed truck <laughs> and we're gonna put a Clavinova one of those little Yamaha pianos on it and Yo-Yo has a fiberglass cello connected to a speaker Oh. And the two of us sat on the back of this and went to various parking lots and played for for UPS people, for nurses and doctors, for firemen. And, you know, it was just to give them a break, you know, 20 minutes that come out and watch us. And, you know, I, I hope they enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, it must have been a special treat. Well, it was fun. For, it was great for us. We We certainly loved doing it. How did you spend the rest of the pandemic? How have you been spending the rest of the pandemic? Are you exploring I, new works, or what do you do? What do you I, do? I guess I guess I learned I learned some music I hadn't played before. Uh, I stayed home a lot, which was really wonderful. Uh, that was the one silver lining. 
yeah. of, of, you know, that I, I wasn't traveling so much. Uh, and I could be home. I don't know how much my wife liked it, but I liked it a lot. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, basically practicing as, as usual, because that's, that's what I do. I did some playing for ICUs, you know, over the iPhone, things oh, like really? that. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, that's just, so interesting. Yeah. How would you arrange something like that? Well, this was, again, an amazing lady, doctor, who... Uh, is also a pianist and has a friend. One friend was at a Methodist hospital in Houston and one was in New York and they arranged a network for people to just get online, uh, you know, and, and just offer people, do you want some music? You know, they'd put an mm -hmm. iPhone next to them. If they were on a ventilator or something, they couldn't do anything. You know, so, do you yeah. want some music? And you'd play for, you know, an hour or a couple of hours, anything at all. And, you know, and they would ask, do you want more music? Yes, I'd like more, or no, I'm done. And they you know, would know, move. the patient would know that there was a real person playing live. I think they would, I, well, they, they might know, you know, you'd probably tell people, uh, but I don't know if they knew for sure or not. It must have been an interesting experience for you, knowing you were playing for somebody who was sick and who might benefit from hearing your music. Well, it's just, you know, it made it made me feel kind of useful, yeah. if you know what I mean. You know, one of the things about being a musician is that in a pandemic, you can't, there's nothing I can really do. I can't cure anybody. I can't help anybody. And, right. you know, in a hospital, uh, all I can do is maybe relieve some of the tedium and, and give them a little pleasure. So you feel kind of useful, which is good. I saw some place that you were playing more Bach during the pandemic. I tr I tried to I you know I was such a bad student in when I was when I was a kid and I played very little Bach and I think it's the most the most useful thing for any musician to practice. So I tried practicing uh some of the preludes and fugues as you know during this time and and I, I don't know if it did any good, but I certainly enjoyed it a lot. What does Bach have that you don't get from other composers? Well, I think it's just the sheer brain power, complexity, difficulty, and kind of, you have to think all the time. Mm. And, and also, he's, it's the complete package. He's so emotionally deep, but also intellectually so challenging that you know if you can if you can play the 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 preludes and fugues of bach you're very good <laughs> you know <laughs> there there are people i know who play all 48 of them and i am awed by those people have you played much bach in concerts and recitals o almost almost none almost none now having been exposed more to it Will you do more of that now? No, I'll just play it at home. <laughs> I'm too, <laughs> too self-critical. I'm too scared of it, you know. And, and at, at, at my age, it's better to leave well enough alone. It's fine. <laughs> Wait, tell me about a technical thing. Is there a difference in the way the music comes out and the appreciation on the part of the audience if you play with the score in front of you or play it oh. from memory. 
Oh, I don't think so. I I actually don't think so. I think if if I ever got to the point where I'm nervous about you know just memorize memorizing or knowing what how I would have no hesitation whatsoever in putting the music in front of me. In fact, when I play, when when Yoyo and I play together, we both have the music. And all the string quartets that play, they all have music. You know, it's kind of an accepted thing. So if I were playing alone and if I felt the need, I would definitely put the music out there. We're reaching the end of our time, and this has been such a wonderful conversation. The only thing that would have made it better is if we both had a beer together over the same table. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We, we always end every show with seven quick questions, roughly okay. to do with communication. I'll do okay. my best. Okay. Okay. okay, first question, first one. What, what do you wish you really understood? Oh, uh, how to, uh, what we talked about, how to be excited and not nervous at the same time. <laughs> that, that's great. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, oh, well, I, I would say it depends who you're talking to. Um, hmm. If you're talking to a friend, you just say, I think that's a mistake. Hmm. And if you're talking to someone you don't really know, you say, uh, I'll thank you for the info. I'll check it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thank, thank you for that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Ooh, uh, what's, what's the hardest piece for the piano? The reason that's strange is because I find everything hard, but I've come up with an answer. The hardest piece is the Brahms Violin Concerto, because no pianist can play it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> Nothing Ooh. personal in that uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know how. I, I think I would just grin and bear it. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table and sitting next to someone you've never met. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? Uh, I find it very easy by simply asking what they're interested in. Huh. Uh, what did you do today? What do you oh, like today. doing? What did you do today? Well, That's you can great. start that way, but then you yeah. can say, what do you like doing generally? Uh, do you like sports? You know, whatever. Uh, I find that very easy. Okay, next to last, what gives you confidence? <laughs> Playing a performance that I thought went pretty well then you feel, okay, I still am a professional pianist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last question. Okay. What book changed your life? Maybe, maybe The Great Pianists by Harold Schoenberg. Oh, I don't know that book. It was a sort of overview of everyone who played the piano from Beethoven on to the present day. And... I thought he wrote wonderfully, and the chapters are so fascinating, and the personalities are so fascinating. That kind of, made, you know, made me realize what an incredible tradition we have. Well, 
as part of that great tradition, I'm so grateful to you for taking this time with us. It's been a really oh. fun conversation. Alan, Thank you it's, so always, much. It, it's always a privilege. Thank you for finding time for me. Thank you so much, Manny. Talk Take to you care. soon. Great. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Emmanuel Axe has recently returned from a nine-concert tour of Europe, followed by three concerts with the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, D.C. Next month, he'll be back home in his beloved Berkshires, playing several concerts during the Tanglewood Music Festival. You can catch up with his schedule and his recordings at emmanuelaxe.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Heaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Monica Guzman. She's written an immensely valuable book called I Never Thought of It That Way. It's a guide to getting through difficult conversations. Conversations like those with her parents. My parents and I were all Mexican immigrants. We became citizens in the year 2000 after about a decade in the United States. I voted for Biden and Clinton in 2016. My parents voted for Trump both times enthusiastically. You know, people assume, wow, you must have compromised some of your values in order to talk about theirs. And I'm like, no, not at all. <laughs> it's not a thing that happens. Their vote for Trump and my vote for Clinton and Biden is sort of the result of the paths we walked. So once I got to know enough of their experiences through the world and, and how that led to their view of everything on immigration, on guns, on everything, it just made sense the way they would vote. And once it made sense, that changed everything. Monica Guzman and how courage and curiosity can pry open conversational doors. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>